Well, I finally did it this past week. I finally watched The Passion of the Christ. How many of you have seen the movie? Quite a few of you. It's been out for 18 months and I've never seen it. I could give you all kinds of reasons why I didn't. Let me list them for you. You know what? I'm really not into movies very much. I mean, in the past year, I've watched maybe that many movies. I think about spending two hours sitting in front of a, of a television watching a movie and it's just hard. There's so many things to do. I'm more of an active person. So there. Um, you know, I'm really not into blood and gore. I'm not. And so, I didn't think I'd like the movie anyway. Or, you know, I don't want my mind to be infiltrated with the images of Jesus lest they be against what the Bible speaks about. I want to let the Bible give me images of what Christ's suffering and death was like. So I'm not going to watch the movie. And you know, I'm not really sure whether it violates the second commandment or not. So just to be safe, I'm not going to watch the movie. You know what? Those are all fronts. You know why I didn't watch the movie? I was scared. I was scared. I think about the, the unbelievable... I'm not into blood and gore. And I think about the blood and gore that took place with Christ. Especially I think about nailing His hands to the cross. I was scared. So I didn't watch it for 18 months. But, getting to this text, I felt like it was my responsibility to watch it. Because that is what this text is all about. This text, Matthew 27, verses 26 through 32, are filled with blood and gore. I mean, the movie shows them in living color. The passion means, the passion of the Christ means the sufferings of the Christ. And this is all about the sufferings. This is all about blood. This is all about the things that took place about Him. And so... I did watch it in the afternoon, lest I be filled with nightmares at night. But there's no reason to ignore the reality of Christ's sufferings. In fact, you know what? We can't ignore the reality of Christ's sufferings. This is the heart of our faith. Without a suffering Messiah, our faith is in vain. And in fact, I go further. Had Jesus not suffered and died in the exact way as represented in Scripture, our faith is in vain. We of all men are most to be pitied because we've believed in something that's just flat out not true. And so we need to look deeply into the sufferings of Christ. And the movie I watched this week did it very well. And after that movie, many people have seen it and asked one simple question. Many people after the movie have seen it and they've said, Why? In fact, I have a non-Christian friend with whom I've been sharing the Gospel recently. And uh, he saw the movie and he said, Why? He doesn't know. He's not coming from a Christian background. And to think about seeing the sufferings of this man, he said, Why? So I gave him a book by John Piper. 
the passion of Jesus Christ. Because it's 52 reasons why Jesus Christ suffered. And I was going to bring one for you, but I've given all of my copies away. It's a good question. Why did Jesus suffer like that? In fact, over the past few weeks, we have seen Jesus again and again and again and again declared to be righteous. He declared to be innocent at His religious trials. The religious leaders sought to obtain any sort of testimony against Jesus that they could. And all they could get was false testimony, which was obviously contradictory. Nobody could rise up and testify that Jesus had done anything wrong. He was innocent. Judas, one of his most intimate intimate companions, gave testimony to the chief priests and elders they set themselves. He said that Jesus was an innocent man. I've betrayed, as it says in Matthew 27, verse 4, I've betrayed innocent blood. He was innocent. And of anybody to know the sins of Jesus, it was Judas who walked and talked with him for three years. And yet, Judas declared Jesus to be innocent and righteous. At his Roman trial, there were several occasions in which Jesus was demonstrated to be righteous through the Gospel of John. Three times, Pilate says to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. They said, crucify him. He goes back. He comes out against, I find no guilt in him. They said, crucify him. He goes back. He comes in. I find no guilt in him. Three times did Pilate say that he was innocent. In Matthew and Chapter 27, verse 24, he washes his hands to say, I'm innocent of the blood of this man because you want him crucified. I find no guilt, but to keep the peace, I'll give him over to you. And though Jesus was declared to be innocent on many, many different occasions, he suffered greatly. And the question is, why? Well, the answer I talked about last week in my last point in verse 26 comes because Jesus Christ died as a substitutionary sacrifice, right? Verse 26, then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. This is a perfect picture. Barabbas was headed for the cross, but Jesus took his place. It's called the substitutionary sacrifice, substitutionary atonement. This is that Christ suffered instead of us. And that's the glorious news of the Gospels, that we deserve to be punished for our sins, but Christ took that punishment for us upon the cross. He took it in our place. He took it instead of us. I quoted last week ten verses. Speak about that. I could have given twenty more. Speak about how Christ died for us. He died in our place. He suffered for us. But you know what? There is another side to that. Which, which goes better. That's the negative side, taking punishment for our sins. It has a flip side. Not only does Jesus Christ take upon us, take upon Himself what we deserve, He also gives us what we don't deserve. And so, He takes our bad and He gives us His good. If we walk through our text this morning, we're going to see many, many of the punishments that Christ bore. And I'm going to use them as a springboard to speak not only of what He bore, but also of a corresponding truth about what it is that He has given to us. My message this morning will be a bit more devotional than usual. It will be a bit more poetic. But it will allow us to slow down and think about the sufferings of Christ and what they obtain for us who believe. I mean, apart from the benefits that we receive, it's a sad text. 
But when we see the benefits that we receive from His sufferings, this text becomes thrilling and I trust that it will open up to you. I've already read the text in our service this morning. I want to bring us to our first point. First point is this. He was scourged that we might be healed. That's verse 26. He was scourged that we might be healed. What happened to Jesus Christ was typical of those who were to be crucified. They were first scourged and then sent to the cross to die. In doing so, the criminal would be weakened a bit, thus would die a bit sooner. Roman beatings were brutal. The Old Testament limits the number of scourges that a person could take. Limits it to 40. But in Rome, no limit. A Roman scourging was limited really by two factors. The endurance and will of those who actually carried out the flogging. As long as they had the power to do it, and as long as they wanted to do it, they could flog an individual. And when Jesus was scourged, that's what they did. They stripped him of his clothes, tied him to a post, and whipped his bare skin with leather thongs, which had pieces of bone or lead on the end of them. The end result would be gashes into his skin that would cause tremendous pain. And depending upon the number of lashes received and the type of whip used and the strength of the Roman soldier to bring down the whip, the skin might easily be ripped right off the body. Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived near the time of Christ, tells us how there were some who were beaten so severely by the Romans that their inward parts appeared naked. In other words, the skin was ripped so badly that their inner parts were open and exposed to the air. And Jesus received not a Jewish Jewish scourging. He received a Roman scourging. So why was Jesus whipped like this? Isaiah 53 verse 5 prophesies of the Messiah, By His scourging we are healed. By His scourging, we are healed. The Scriptures say the sufferings that He endured become, this is where I'm a little poetic now, a sort of tonic for us. A sort of medicine that we can take. See, it's by its scourging we are healed. From time to time, I experience migraine headaches. <clears throat> Those of you who know me probably know this. happens about once a year. might happen about... Three months from now, it might happen in a year and a half from now, but probably over the past 30 years of my life, I've probably had 30 migraine headaches. And it begins with my vision. It begins what's called an aura. I lose my peripheral vision. I can see straight ahead of me, but whenever it starts coming on, I, I put my hand out right here like this, and I wave it like this, and I can't see my hand. I wave it on this side, and I can't see my hand at all if I'm looking straight forward, and I know then in a matter of a half an hour, my head is going to hurt really, really bad. And so what I often do is try to go to bed to get to sleep before the sharpest pain comes on. And it normally takes me about 24 hours, then I feel better. And I always say, you know what, it's the Lord's means to, to humble me. And just say, you know what, I can't go all the time. And I'm done for 24 hours. Sometimes I wake up groggy. And on two different occasions over the past 30 years, it's taken me to the hospital. Things have been bad enough. And over the years, I've tried a variety of medicines to try to help me. My father's a physician. 
And so, you know, he goes to this medical conference or hears somebody talking about migraine medicine, migraine headaches. And so he talks to him and says, oh, what's next? And so I, I've been an experiment. Okay? I've had lots of different drugs tried on me. In fact, I even remember one time we were living in an apartment and I had a headache and my dad came over with a needle and a syringe and this great medicine. And he put it in my leg and it was awful. That was the worst headache I've ever had. Something in me triggered it really, really bad. And over the years, I've tried many, many, many different things. But you know what I found even in the recent years? Probably the past three years. I found this stuff. Works by far the best of anything I've taken. It is Excedrin migraine, acetaminophen, that's Tylenol, aspirin, and caffeine. And my dad heard about this at a conference sometime. And it was just a combination of Tylenol and aspirin and caffeine just really helps. And it's helped me immensely. In fact, the last several migraine headaches I've had, I've recovered in about five hours. It's really helpful. You know what? Your sin is the same way. You may have been looking to a solution of your sin. You may have tried reforming your character. You may have tried to overcome your sin through mere willpower. Maybe you've tried to overcome your sin by by making a deal with God and, and making up for your mistakes. Say, God, I'll do this, right? I'll do this good thing and so I can cover up the bad. Maybe you've tried to read your Bible, attend church routine. All of that's taken the wrong medicine. It's only one medicine which you can be healed of your sin. It's simple. Take the tonic of his scourgings. Don't take it in your mouth. Take it in your ear and hear the gospel and believe it and embrace it. Because it's by his scourgings that we are healed of our sins. As the hymn writer says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Take the tonic of the scourgings of Jesus Christ. Because He was scourged that we might be healed. Second point this morning, He was stripped that we might be clothed. In verse 27, we find the, the Roman soldiers gathering around Jesus like a pack of coyotes around a prey. In verse 28, we read that they stripped Jesus. That is, they took off His clothes. It probably consisted of an outer garment that was wrapped around His body. And Jesus, kids, catch this, was standing naked wearing only His underwear. I want you kids to think about how you would feel if I brought you up here and took off all your clothes and left you in your underwear. How would you feel? Huh? How would you feel, Jonathan? Pretty humiliated, right? Pretty empty. Pretty awful. And that was the purpose. They were trying to shame Jesus. In fact, in the Middle East today, in the Jewish culture of that day, was much more modest than it is today. And, and today it's true. You go to the Middle East and you won't find men wearing shorts. Men wear long pants. And uh, back in the day of Jesus, I don't care how hot it is outside, men wear long pants. It's rare for you to see anything else. Same in the days of Jesus, right? The only time that they would do is they, they'd grit up their loins, made a pick to work. Okay, but other than that, they're... Their tunics were down, looking like dresses, covering themselves because the Jewish people were modest people. And so to strip Jesus down to His underwear would be a shameful thing, but it would show Him naked, having nothing. But here's the good news. And again, I'm poetic here. He was stripped that we might be clothed. Right? 
We, we, when we believe in the gospel of Christ, we are clothed in His righteousness. The Apostle John described the scene in heaven. He saw of a great multitude. They stood before the throne from every nation, all tribes and people and language and tongue. And they stood before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes. That is, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers our sin. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, All you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. And the only reason we can be clothed with Christ is because Christ went through His sufferings and part of that sufferings meant being stripped and laid bare. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks about his, this clothing of Christ as gain. The world is lost. But the righteousness of Christ found in me, not through, through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ, that's gain to me, is what he says. And when Jesus was stripped of His clothes, He was stripped that we might be clothed of His righteousness. My third point. Jesus wore a crown of thorns that we might wear a crown of glory. Right? Look at the first part of verse 29. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on His head. Now, this was punishment to Jesus. The flogging would have left Jesus bleeding from His body, but this crown now caused Jesus to bleed from His head. You think about a crown of thorns. In order to stay fixed upon His head, these thorns coming out of His, his crown must have been pressed onto His head. I mean, none of this just kind of lay it lightly upon the head so He kind of can do one of these and tip it off. They pushed it on his head and they pierced it onto his head and these thorns dug deep into his skin and probably into his skull to hold it there. And certainly there were times during his sufferings that Christ would have bumped his head against the cross as he carried it. I mean, you can imagine him carrying his cross with his crown of thorns, you know, and kind of the crowd just they're all around and the cross comes against his head and boom, hits his head digs the thorns deeper into His brow. It's likely that as Jesus hung on the cross and experienced cramps due to dehydration, due to lack of oxygen, and, and, and jerked and convulsed His body back upon the cross, the crown of thorns would have dug deep into the back of His neck. And I think I have problems with headaches. Christ far more. Especially, think about verse 30. They took this reed and they began to beat Him on the head. I mean, picture the, this reed to be like a hammer and hitting Him on the head and taking those thorns like nails and beating Him deeper and deeper and deeper into His skull. A few weeks ago, I told you my youngest daughter Hannah got a splinter in her bottom. She was sliding down some wood and got a splinter an inch and a half long. Said it went into her skin and out of her skin. Well, last night, Hannah got another splinter. This time she was outside walking and she stepped in something. It came up and Yvonne says it was an inch and a half long. Going right into the bottom of her foot. I think it went to the bottom of her foot maybe a three-eighths of an inch. And Yvonne tried to play surgeon this time and snapped it off. And so Dad came along and played surgeon. I saw it and, and, and she didn't have the advantage that Dad wasn't holding Hannah. But 
Yvonne was holding Hannah for me, and I, I just I pulled it out. And the scream that she laughed, you'd have thought she was losing a limb. I said, Hannah, calm down, calm down. Maybe we should do this inside. But she was outside yelling, bloody murder. Oh! And this was one splinter. Compare that to a crown of thorns around a head. And the pain and the suffering that Jesus took was unbearable. Pressing in from side to side. But you know what? Here's the truth of the Gospel. Is that Jesus wore a crown of thorns that we might receive and be given a crown of glory. Many places in Scripture speak about the crown that believers will receive one day. It's talked about a crown in different ways. James speaks about it as the crown of life. Peter talks about it as the unfading crown of glory. At the end of his life, Paul was anticipating the crown of righteousness which the Lord would give them on the future day. And the promise is made. The crown is available to all who have loved His appearing. The crown is available for you. If you love His appearing and love Christ. But in order to get that crown, Jesus had to have this uncomfortable crown upon His head. And the contrast between our crown and His crown immense. Have you ever seen a kingly crown? Lots of jewels and stuff. It's always padded. I've always seen it like with fur on the inside. You know what I'm talking about? So that you put it on there and it just kind of rests. You're like, oh, that feels kind of good on my head. The contrast between the crown that we will receive and the crown that Christ bore is immense. But the only reason we receive the crown of glory is because He wore a crown of thorns. <clears throat> Let's look at point number four. He was mocked that we might be honored. It's the point of verses 28 29. When they stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him. <coughs> and weaving a crown of thorns, they put on his head to make him look like a king. And a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They were mocking him. The reason they put this robe on Jesus was to make him look like a king. It was a, a scarlet robe, as it says here. John says it was a purple robe. I think it was a purplish scarlet robe. Red. Maybe it was a little purple. Maybe the blood of Jesus stained it red. I just think a blood stain. That's probably the color of the robe. But purple, I think John mentions, because it makes Jesus look like a king. Right? And that's the point. They put a, a reed in His hand to make it look like His royal scepter. When it was all done, Jesus would have looked like the little kid who's playing dress-up. You know, I have a little dress up here. This is from our basement. You know what the kids like to do with this, don't you? They put it over their head like this. And guess what? They're the king. They're the queen. And I don't think we've ever done this, but if you would probably ask, SR, Chris, if he's come and say, Dad, hail to the king! I might get down on my knees and say, Hail to King SR! Hail to a powerful King SR! And it's fun, right? But what these soldiers were doing with Jesus wasn't fun. It wasn't a cute little game of dress-up with little children. No, they said, Jesus, look at you! 
I love your royal clothes, Jesus. Your robe is so beautiful. Your crown is so lovely. Your staff is fitting. We hail you as a king. And maybe they even sang a little ditty, a ditty as they paraded around the king. Da 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 da. Here's the king, all the while mocking him. And Jesus didn't crack a smile. Jesus was being insulted and mocked. Jesus was being brought down low. Jesus was being humiliated. And I, I can't help but think of Psalm 2 at this point, right? The nations raging against the Lord and against His anointed. But what does it say that God does in the heavens? He, he laughs at them. And God was in the heavens saying, Oh, oh Roman soldiers, vengeance is mine and I will repay. You are mocking Him, but you will get your day in court. And eventually, Jesus was laid in the tomb. God did get His day. He raised Him from the dead. Seated Him up. Psalm 2, verse 7. As for you, I've installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. Installed Him as a a King. Today I've begotten Thee. In the day of the coronation. In the day of the resurrection. Jesus really is the King. Raised Raised to the right hand of of God in the heavenly places, putting all things in subjection under His feet, placing, giving Jesus great honor. Do you know why? Because He bore up under sorrows while suffering unjustly, which finds favor with God. And Joe, though Jesus was mocked, somebody will judge and rule the world. But the good news of the Gospel is this, that we get to share in His exaltation. <clears throat> We get to share in His honor. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says that God saves people only by His grace. In fact, He saves people in a specific way so that boasting is entirely excluded. He saves them by His sovereign hand of grace, choosing, electing, and drawing them to Himself so that no one can boast, so that in the ages to come, He might show forth the surpassing excellencies of His grace in riches towards us who believe in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I tried to write about that in the Food for the Flock, which is on the back table, just came out just, just today. God's purpose for your life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. I feel feeble in my words. But Ephesians 2, verse 7 speaks about God's purpose for your life. And do you know what God's purpose for your life is if you're a believer in Christ? And so someday when you get to heaven, God can say, look at how merciful I am to those people who are walking in darkness, dead in their sins, and I chose them, and I made them alive, and I brought them together with Christ, and I, they are here in heaven with me only because I've been gracious to them. And forever we'll be lifted up and honored as a vessel of mercy because of God's great grace. That is God's purpose for your life if you're a believer in Christ. It says it right here in Ephesians 2.7. You can read this. Where was I? Christ was mocked that we might be honored. And the mocking was great. Verse 30 continues the mocking. They spit on him, took a reed, began to beat him. Spitting upon someone was one of the highest insults that could be paid. It shows you're only a little bit above pond scum when you spit on somebody. And that's what they thought of Jesus. I've already talked about how brutal it would have been to be beaten upon a head on the head when you're wearing a crown of thorns. 
But you can see the travesty of the situation, right? They take the scepter out of his hand. Here's the king, and they dethrone him before his very eyes, bringing him lower and lower and lower. They hated the king. You know what? Here's what it is. They will hate us too. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you too. The follower of Christ will suffer much in this world. Be sure of that. But be equally sure that there is honor and blessing that the Lord will bestow upon all who have loved loved Him. Do you remember when Jesus was speaking in Matthew 25 of entering into the kingdom? Jesus said that the Lord would say to His faithful servants, Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Paul said the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But the glory that is to be revealed to us only could take place when Jesus was mocked and scorned. There will be a day when we receive glorified bodies. When we walk in a glorified city. When we no longer sin, we become partakers of the glory that is to be revealed. But we don't receive honor until Jesus first received mocking. He was scourged that we might be healed. He was stripped that we might be clothed. He wore a crown of thorns that we might wear a crown of glory. He was mocked that we might be honored. Here it is, point number five. He was put to a painful death that we might enjoy pleasures forevermore. He was put to a painful death that we might enjoy pleasures forevermore. Verse 31 says this, And after they mocked Him, they took His robe off and put His garments on Him and led Him away to crucify Him. It said that necessity is the mother of invention. <clears throat> it's true. That's how things are invented. There's a need, you invent it. So the Romans had a need. Their need was, how can we kill people slowly? How can we cause people maximum amount of suffering? Hmm. You know, the engineers go back and they think about ways and <clears throat> crucifixion. Ah, that would work. Crucifixion is the way. It was designed and invented to kill criminals slowly. It wasn't like the guillotine, which would chop off the head and kill its victims quickly. It wasn't like hanging people in the gallows, which would break their neck when the floor dropped and kill them quickly. It wasn't like before the firing squad in which drops its victims quickly. The shot rings out, people are hit, they fall, and they're dead soon afterwards. No, no, no. This isn't crucifixion. It's not the intent. The design of crucifixion is to cause the victims to suffer as much as possible before they die. I've told you before, it's like drowning slowly. The victim ultimately dies of asphyxiation. They no longer have the strength to pull themselves up to breathe. They die for lack of oxygen. I want to compare this, give you an idea of the pain of crucifixion a bit to some of the martyrs of the Christian church. I remember reading one time about some Scotsmen who were crucified for their faith. They were martyred by being tied to a post at low tide. Start thinking what's going to happen now. Tied to a post... At low tide. At high tide, that post is underwater. At low tide, it's out. And that's how they drowned. Some victims before, some Christian martyrs. 
That's drowning slowly. Can you just imagine it? <coughs> You're bound around this post. And it's high noon when they tie you, and you know the tide comes in, and we'll be in at 5 o'clock. So you've got five hours to think about what's going to take place. And at first you're dry. And then the water comes in. <clears throat> and it brushes against your feet. And you're like, oh, that's, that's cool. But pretty soon that's the least of your problems. So the waves start coming in. You know, the waves, the water gets up to about your chest. And then here comes a big wave. And you, oh, you got past that one. And the big wave comes by. And the water's still up to your chest.